0: you are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call. They're good at that. 905 529 7165 and check out the website at AndyAndDon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well listen to old archive shows. Good morning gentlemen. Good to see you all good,
2: good morning, morning scott, scott. Morning hey, you, Andy. Didn't say, you didn't say see us in our squares
1: i see you in your squares
2: there we are <laughs>
1: yeah you, we better say that otherwise people might think we have internet issues
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> or we're live together <laughs> yeah exactly oh
1: my. yes they're I not socially
3: to be in the studio together it can't be that long from doing that again scott
1: exactly we're socially distanced I, yeah we should mention that otherwise someone might call the police <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that happening in neighborhoods Where neighborhoods are, or neighbors are having people out the backyard You know, socially distanced And other neighbors are calling the officials oh, on them brother. Yeah, uh, That's what exactly. it's coming to Well,
3: I guess uh, hopefully uh, maybe next year's show We will be back And I've, have you heard anything, Scott?
1: Um, uh, last I heard was Labor Day Oh, okay But, you know, um, don't hold your breath as they say Okay I, It is only the third wave Uh, All right. So uh, news this week, nothing really uh, grappling other than, uh, of course, 18 plus gets vaccinated, which is great. But also I I wanted to ask you guys something about uh, the dollar. It seems to be moving up. It seems to be uh, pretty healthy at this point. I know you're going to talk about that later, Don, but you want to touch on what we're seeing happen here?
3: Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right, Scott. You know, you go back uh, just over a year ago and the dollar fell under 75 cents, it was like 71 cents U.S., and, and now, we're, now we're around 83 cents U.S., and a lot of it has to do, in fact, I just happened to check this this past week, and I said, you know, we're very much a resource-based country. And so I said to my, my associate, who also was my son, Mitch, I said, you know what would be interesting is seeing how is Australia doing, because they're also a resource-based currency, and they've also done very well against the U.S. dollar. So right now you're finding countries that are you know strong in resources, their dollar is going up right now, and we're, we're the recipient of that right now. That may be good or bad news, and we're going to talk about
2: that later in the show. All right, and uh, so I'm going to jump in here. I wanted to uh, just have a quick discussion about vacation property succession planning, and uh, this is something that uh, for... Canadians, I guess, everybody in that sense, it sort of bubbles up to the surface. uh, And for those people that they love their family cottage, and uh, whether it it might be a chalet, it might be a condo, a vacation property somewhere. But uh, uh, for a lot of times, there's so many memories and history associated with these properties that people want to keep them in the family. And uh, so having a proper succession plan is so critical to minimizing arguments and the fights and uh, and also trying to equalize things along the way. So as I thought about this process and going through it, we want to talk a little bit just quickly. And it highlights our tax liability at the time of death, the principal residence exemption, preserving the adjusted cost base, we'll talk about that, planning using insurance, gifting during your lifetime, uh, equalizing the estate with insurance, and then planning for multiple owners. So we'll see if we can k- wrap up all that in, uh, in the next few minutes we've got. So the first thing is planning for tax consequences. And the thing that people often don't realize is that when you die, you, have, you are deemed to dispose of everything as of uh, midnight, the date of death, the day before, at fair market value. So this deemed disposition at death is something that kind of people, eh, I don't know, we just forget about it, but we don't really think about it in our day-to-day lives. And the only time that that's not going to happen is if you're transferring property to a spouse or common law partner, in which case you're just simply deferring that uh, deemed disposition until their death, your second, the second uh, partner's death. So I think one of the big worries then is, is there going to be enough money in the estate to pay the taxes that are owing when somebody dies, or does an asset have to be sold? And that's typically what people are trying to avoid in this scenario, right, is can we hang on to the cottage and chalet, uh, and is there enough money to pay the taxes so that we can keep it? Um, So one thing that you can do to minimize tax is you can explore the principal residence exemption, and the issue around that is that you can only designate one property per family. And um, so in typical scenario where you might see somebody who uh, has owned a cottage, let's say they bought it 20 years ago, but in the meantime, they bought and sold their house in the city a couple of times, and they've used that principal residence exemption to avoid paying tax on that sale of the home in the city. So really that doesn't leave them the principal residence exemption when it comes to the cottage. But in some cases, uh, you might be able to, and uh, and so that's going to be important um, to understand where, and an accountant will help you work through uh, your financial planner, work through which is better in terms of designating that principal residence exemption. Uh, the next topic is what we call preserving your ACB. ACB stands for adjusted cost base, and it's a fancy word or, or accounting terminology, which basically means... Uh, what did you pay for your cottage and how much did you uh, pay to do additions or updates to it as well? And um, so preserving that, you want to, the basic formula is the higher your ACB, the higher your adjusted cost base, the lower your taxable gain is going to be at death or when it's sold. So preserving that ACB means that you need to keep all your receipts for everything that you've done for at the cottage uh some people put them in a i've heard people say they put them in that they call it the acb box which is basically a box filled with receipts and all the different things that they'd spent money on i know don we've talked about taking photos of receipts some people create a ledger which they keep at the cottage uh, uh open in case of death <laughs> and, uh, yes exactly you know, and so
3: the photo is, uh, these days, uh, certainly with the smartphones, such an easy way to take a picture and, and then move it. But unfortunately, a lot of these cutters are well before a cell phone, so may not have worked. They are keeping a lot of receipts in little boxes, I think, right now.
2: Yeah, and the one thing to remember is it doesn't include sweat equity. So all the hard work you put in personally, it's only things that you bought, purchased, or paid for. Uh, They can add to the ACB. Now, there also was uh, something called the lifetime capital gain exemption, which does impact your ACB. And this was if you bought a property prior to 1994, actually 1992, you had until 1994 to claim the exemption. Uh, A lot of people did claim that $100,000 lifetime exemption, so the gains on the cottage, uh, the taxable gains at death would be reduced because of that. So that's important to make sure if somebody's done that, keep the paperwork, keep that tax return. Again, mark it in a file to be opened in case of death.
3: (laughs) And and it's funny you say that, Andy, because I have had that conversation with clients, and we literally have gone back to their 1994 tax return. And in that year, there was something called a, a capital gains election package, and they had to fill that in and file it with that year with the government. And sure enough, it was still there, and they had forgotten they did it. But it's just, again, we, we've been dealing with these clients for such a long period of time now. It's, it was marked in our file that we, we, this was um, something that had happened. And, uh, sir, it saved uh, you know, 000, up to $100,000 in capital gains that uh, was exempt.
2: Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So this is why it's so important to have a good record-keeping system, and communicate not only with your financial planner, but also with your family members about that as well. Um, so the, often the problem, as I say, is that you end up with this large asset, a large gain on the asset, and a taxable uh, amount that you're going to have to pay in your estate. So a lot of times people will look to, how am I going to fund that tax liability if I owe $100,000, 200000 of taxes? And life insurance is something that um, is often used. Now, a lot of times people might think, well, I've got, I've got money left over in my estate right now. But um, often is the case, as we age, things like long-term care needs in the final years, all of these sort of chew into those, those final amounts that you have available to pay that tax at death. So life insurance is something that's um, worth exploring. It, again, it's something that you should do sooner rather than later. Uh, because insurability, your health, et cetera, comes into play. And don't, um, don't shy away from it just because of the cost. It might be something to discuss with your children. They may be very interested in paying or sharing some of the cost of the premium for this insurance policy. And really the goal is to avoid that fire sale, right? If there's mm-hmm. not enough money left over and suddenly now you've got to raise capital to pay the taxes and uh, if, the, if the property, the cottage, the condo, the shop has to, all be, has to be sold in a hurry, sometimes you're not gonna get the best price, right? So that's that's a key element. Um, a lot of times we get questions about gifting during lifetime. And uh, so I think the mistake with gifting that people often think about is that they can avoid this tax, this ultimate tax that they're going to pay. And um, they might reduce it by gifting it during a lifetime, but the problem is is that it's cons- when you gift something, it's considered sold immediately at fair market value. So you're going to trigger those gains immediately. And so, well, some people say, well, I'll put it into joint account. Well, then you're deemed to have sold a proportionate share. So, for example, if you're a parent, uh, and you have two kids and you decide to add the two kids as joint, you've basically sold two thirds of the value of your cottage and you're going to pay capital gains on two thirds of that fair market value over and above the adjusted cost base. Um, you also have to be careful too, because you might end up with double taxation if you're, if you're not careful using gifting. Um, but for example, let's say you purchased a cottage for $50,000, simple numbers, 10 years later, uh, you sell it to your kids for 50,000, but the actual fair market value is a hundred grand. And so what you pay tax on is actually $50,000 capital gain, because that's the fair market value you paid 50, you sold it or gifted it for a hundred. So you've got a $50,000 capital gain, but the kids adjusted cost base is, uh, is 50 grand. And so 10 years later, let's say it's worth 200. Well, they're going to pay tax on $150,000 capital gain, not $100,000 capital gain. So they've been double taxed. So that's a trap you got to watch out for as well. You're also allowed to defer your gains on the the, uh, sale of the uh, cottage over five years. And that works pretty well with family, 20%. But if it's not family involved, you just have to make sure you've got some kind of uh, uh, equity and interest in it until all the final payments have been made. And, um, and if you're not getting payments from your kids and, and you're going to, you want to consider that in your will for giving the debt, uh, but included in the will for the purposes of dividing up the estate so that the other kids receive a similar value. And uh, the other thing to think about with gifting during lifetime is you lose control. What if there's a marriage breakdown and suddenly there's a, an in-law who is now owning the cottage or has a, uh, a right to the cottage as well? So again, equalizing the estate becomes important, and insurance is a, is a good way to do that. Um, if you have multiple owners, for example, uh, I think two kids or something, a lot of times we recommend a co ownership agreement in writing that's created. And you can even do that while the kids are, while you're alive and while the kids are still involved in the cottage. And it really just sets the tone for the way it's going to operate after your death because you've already established that. It's kind of hard to get a, um, a co-ownership agreement after you've died it's a little bit more difficult to do but you could make (laughs) but you could make it as part of a requirement that in order to get the property you have to uh, set up a co-ownership agreement and this just spells out what's going to happen at death right so if you if one of the children dies is it going to go to a son or daughter-in-law is it going to go to their surviving grandchildren or surviving children your grandchildren So all of that gets spelled out in this sort of multiple-owner-co-ownership agreement policy. So lots of twists and turns on the cottage succession planning, but uh, feel free to give us a call if you've got more questions. We'll be happy to give you some information.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Call now. They'll get back to you. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. They will return your call at 905-529-7165, and check out their website at AndyandDon.com. That's andyanddawn, all one word.com. There you can listen to old archive shows, as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Uh, going to talk about investment concepts uh, this break. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, you know, there's so many different parts of investing, and, and some of these seem quite simple, but... Emotion gets in the way so often that I thought, you know what, let's go back to the basics a bit and just discuss what risk is, positive returns, dollar cost averaging, you know, global diversification. We're going to talk about all the different concepts and, and kind of cement them in, in the listener's mind how they really work, because it's kind of interesting. very simple one right now is you know, risk. What exactly is it? And it really comes down to risk is, is your volatility. How much volatility can you withstand? You know, most people look at risk is how much can I can really it can go down by before I find it very uncomfortable. Nobody thinks it's uncomfortable going up. No, Okay, if it goes up by 50%, that's fine. But that's just that's the other side of risk. But the interesting part is if the market say drops by 20%, you know, if you had $100,000, that would mean it would go down to $80,000. That's a lot of money. Now, again, We've often talked, Andy and I have talked about the long term. But regardless, when you get your statement or if you check online and you say you're 100000 down to, 100, to 80000 that that's alarming. But what the other side of it is, if it, if it goes back up 20%, you're not back to even yet. You need it to go up 25% to go back to $100,000. Um, and same if it say, if the market dropped by 33%. You now need it to go up by 50 percent just to get to even. So a lot of people get confused with the the percentages. And probably the easy example, easiest example is let's say your money dropped from 100,000 to 50,000. That's a 50 percent drop. Well, if it goes up 50 percent from there, that would only bring you back up to 75,000. So you need a 100 percent increase in your in your portfolio just to bring it back to even. So again. Price volatility, percentages can be confusing. A lot of people start adding percentages, it doesn't work. The next is, what's the chance of losing money anyway? And it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't be a betting man against the market. If you take a look at all the positive returns from 1960 to 2020, so we're talking 60 years, and you take a look at even one month, every single month, how many months were positive for the Toronto stock market, the S&P TSX, or the S&P 500, which is the U.S. stock market, there's a 60%, 62% chance every month that you'll have a positive return. So that's only a 38% chance it'll be negative. But still, we, we more focus on, we definitely focus more on the negative side of things and the positive side. Interesting enough, it's almost identical if it was the U.S. stock market or the Canadian stock market. Now, if we say, okay, what about years? What's the chance of a negative stock market year? Well, The Canadian side, there's a 75% chance that it will be positive every year. So that also means a 25% chance you could have a negative year. Going back to what Andy and I talk about, one in four chance that it will be a negative year, but three out of four chances that it will be positive. Um, Funny enough, the U.S. is slightly ahead. It's 78.5% chance of a positive year. So they generally have a slightly more positive one-year returns. And again, this is over the 60-year stretch. Now, three-year returns, there's an 89% chance that it's going to be positive for three years, which is pretty good odds. You know, say, you know, if you're saying, i got almost a 90% chance of having success in a three-year span, not bad at all. U.S. is slightly less in this case. It's actually 86.7%. And now if we stretch it out to five years, and this is where Andy and I always say, well, you look at things five years out, it's a pretty safe bet. Well, I'd say so. 97.8% of all five-year periods for six, the last 60 years, and they've gone month by month. They've gone taken it every month over all those 60 years, and you've got almost a 98% chance of success in Canada and, and about a 90% chance of success in the U.S. Once you hit 10 years, it's a 100% chance. We've never had a 10-year negative return in Canada. There was a lost decade, they called it, in the U.S., and they have, so they actually did have a, a negative 10-year, and it was so there's a 95.6% chance that it will be positive, but there is a really, really small chance that it's been negative for a 10-year stretch. So that's the odds of success. So as long as you think long-term, the chance, and we always look long-term, five years or greater, certainly 10 years is, is very, very reasonable, and you should have a lot of confidence that if you're investing for 10 years, you're going to be... A, have a successful 10-year period of time. But in, in a shorter period of time, yeah, it's, it's rolling their dice a little bit. I, I'd say they're weighted dice. You know, there's three out of four chance that you're going to be su- successful. One out of four will be negative. So the odds are in your favor. But that's, it's kind of interesting, though, how many people want to bet against that negative return. They're saying, I want to take my money out. I think it's going to go down. Well, the odds are stacked against you. Every single month, they're stacked against you. And so I personally would take that bet almost every time, because over the long term, you'll always be better off hanging in there. And we're going to talk about that a little later, too. Now, there's this process that Andy and I have been talking on. Uh, Scott, you've also talked about this on on our show many times over the years. And that's just the strategy of dollar-cost averaging. I know it sounds pretty sexy, this (coughs) dollar-cost averaging stuff, but it really just means you're adding monthly. And it's kind of interesting. Basically, by adding monthly, you are when the when the market's down. And let's say you've got two hundred fifty dollars every month you're investing. When the, the prices are lower, you buy more. You still got the two fifty going in. The prices go up, you buy less. So no different than if bread's on sale and you're spending the exact same amount of dollars. Hey, I can buy more bread this month. The the price of bread was less. Now right now, uh, if you say lumber and your dollar cost averaging in lumber during this pandemic, you're buying a lot less sticks of lumber for the same amount of dollars. Okay, And so this is the same idea with dollar averaging in terms of mutual funds or stocks. You're buying an equal amount of dollar amount every month, which buys you more and more units. So I've got two scenarios here. And let's say over this 10-year period, and we're averaging and we're adding $500 per month for 10 years. And let's say this is what the average price of the units were every single year so 10 years on average you started at five dollars and it went to six dollars down to three bad year up to seven another bad year down to five went up to eight dollars then down to six up to nine dollars per unit down to seven and ended up at ten dollars a unit so it was a bumpy ride up but over those 10 years you ended up going from five dollars to ten dollars and you had lots of dips in between now, option B is you started at five dollars, and immediately the price starts dropping. And the next year, it's three and a half dollars, then two and a half dollars, then two dollars. It actually drops down to one dollar per unit. Then it goes back up to two, two and a half, three and a half, four dollars a unit, and finally ends up just where you started, back at five dollars. So over the period of time, over ten years, you started at five, you ended at five, with a big dip in between. Out of those two examples, Scott, which one do you think? Would you take option A or op- option B?
1: Uh, I'd phone you or Andy and say, what should I take, option A or B?
3: <laughs> good, good call. Spoken like a good client. Andy, Andy probably knows this answer, so I won't even talk to him about this one. But it is a bit of a trick question because the average cost of option A is $5.92, and it ended up at 10 bucks. So not bad at all, and so you're you invested all this money and you actually ended up with a gain of forty-one thousand dollars, adding five hundred a month for hundred and twenty months. So not a bad deal. Okay, five hundred times one twenty, you know you put in sixty thousand dollars over the period of ten years and you end up with a hundred and one thousand three hundred dollars. Not bad at all. Mm. Option B. Where it simply ended up where you end, started with. You never actually had a gain. Your average cost was two dollars and forty-nine cents. You still put in the same sixty thousand. You end up with a gain of sixty thousand six hundred forty-five dollars. You actually doubled your money because you're buying a lot of units or a lot of shares when it was at a dollar per unit. That five hundred dollars bought you five hundred units then, versus when it was at $5 a unit, you only bought a hundred of those units at $5 per unit. So the whole point of dollar cost averaging is it takes the timing out of it. So as much as I said earlier about having positive returns and in the long run, they're gonna be better off. If you still wanna make your portfolio even more conservative, you you dollar cost average into the market, you buy all the time. And so not only you'll you'll benefit from buying all the time, getting, buying more of the cheap shares, and less of the expenses, uh, the expensive ones, you also have the kind of the confidence that over the long run the market will be rising and you'll end up doing very well in your portfolio.
1: That's really exactly what I was going to say, but it's your show, so, you know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to make it look bad here, Scott.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
3: But you've probably heard this before and again from a a long-term dollar-cost averager, Scott, uh well before I met you, you, mm-hmm. you were told that this is a great idea, you know, way before in the, in the past.
1: And, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, the logic for doing it is exactly as you say. But for me, one of the main reasons for doing it was it allowed you to contribute a little bit each month, and then at the end of it all, uh, have something there as opposed to try to scramble for it, and then um, you know may even have to uh, encounter paying tax or not getting the refund because you don't have uh, enough money saved at hand. So for me, it was just it's easier to take it uh, right off your paycheck like a an expense, and then I don't have to worry about it at the end of the year.
3: Yeah, great for savings. It, 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 it shows a little discipline, but it's a heck of a lot harder to come with it at the end of the year. Yeah. And at the same time, gives you a great investment strategy, strategy that actually makes you more money by doing it this way yeah. than just scrambling at the year end and hoping to f- come up with some, and generally less money yeah. than you would have come up with. But it gets to the point, and I don't know if you, you know, you've probably experienced this, this, Scott, you'd probably almost feel guilty if you didn't do it now.
1: Um. Yeah, especially at this stage of my life, and and I've I've said this before. Uh, um, my eldest daughter has now started her first year of of university, and as everyone knows, it's it's a huge expense. And the best advice we got was from you guys, and and that was all right. When baby's born, start saving for this. And my goodness, now at where we are in our life, we wouldn't have that money to pull off a tree and. And and pay for the kid's education, but thank goodness we did that. However many years ago, you know, the year the kid was born, and it, it's it takes care of itself for the first few years.
3: It's it's unbelievable, and yeah. it really becomes a speed bump in terms of an expense. Yeah. It's nothing major, um, it, you, and with the gov- government subsidy, the grant money, if you will, oh on yeah, on an RESP plus the growth, you can save certainly sixty to eighty thousand dollars by starting this. In kids' education, sure, they should chip in a little bit too, but yes, the whole idea of dollar-cost averaging can work in many different products. It can be in RESP, RSP, TFSA. It doesn't matter. It's just a great way to budget.
1: And the other thing, too, is, you know, because obviously you talk to uh, friends and family of of people in the same situation, I mean, all of... Uh, my daughter's friends are sort of their families are in the same predicament. Some had planned for it, some had not, and it's it it, it really is a blast of reality, to be honest.
3: Yeah, it's it's another layer of stress you could totally avoid, yeah. Yeah. by with a little bit of planning and have the government pay for a good chunk of it at the same time. Yeah. So do- dollar cost averaging the next the next um, concept, which is extremely important. I know we've talked about this before, but diversification. And I, I took a look at all the different classes of investments from 1999 to 2020. So a period of 21 years. And one thing we talk about is correlation. How much? How much do investments correlate with an, another one? So, for example, if you had, say, U.S. stocks versus, um, and you looked at U.S. stocks to U.S. stocks, that would be 100% correlated because it's the same asset class. But what about Canadian value? These are very conservative Canadian companies, value stocks, compared to U.S. value co- stocks. I would have thought they would be almost virtually the same. Where we're just across the border, there's only a 50% correlation. So they're not negative correlated. Yes, if, if one goes up by, a, by 10%, the other one will still go up by 5%, say. Or if one goes down by 10%, the other one will go down by, say, 5%. They're not perfectly correlated, but, and that's what you want. You do not want everything to go up and down with each other. They are positively correlated, meaning they still will go up together and down together, but not perfectly. So there's really three ways to diversify or to your portfolio in the equity side. There's style, which would be growth and value. There's large companies and small companies. So that's large, large cap and small cap. And it's interesting. If you take a look at Canadian value, as I mentioned, to U.S. value, it's 0.51. But what about Canadian value to U.S. growth? There's only a, a, third, a 33% correlation between them. And then if you actually go Canadian small cap to U.S. value, it's only a 22% correlation, almost not even correlated at all. So even though the same, type, same stock markets, Canadian versus U.S., the different styles and the different sizes of the companies makes a big difference. And this is why Andy and I always talk about have different styles, have different sizes. Then let's, let's get more foreign. Emerging markets. Well, emerging markets to the U.S. is about a 33% correlation. Um, and then foreign equities to Canadian equities is 65% correlation. So all poor, uh, like I said, all positive correlated, but makes a difference. And this is why you should be totally diversified globally. But then, what about bonds and stocks? Totally different. So you look at Canadian bonds versus Canadian stocks. It's actually negative correlated, meaning one will go up while the other one goes down. And it's a negative 0.12 correlation. And Canadian bonds to U.S. stocks is a negative 33, 0.33 correlation. So a 33% negative correlation. So you're seeing bonds and stocks are negative correlated. So this is where you, they're almost like a shock absorber in a portfolio. And then even the types of bonds you have, global bonds versus Canadian bonds, they also have very small correlations. So the idea is diversify your stocks, diversify your bonds, have them all together in a great, all- great allocation, and you'll end up with a lot less risk.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They'll return your call quick break. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call them now, leave a message, they will return your call. We're talking about investment concepts and now the value of the Canadian dollar. Uh, it seems to be making some news today.
2: Yeah, and this is, I, it's, when you guys were talking about it at the start of the show, uh, it, ironically I was reminded, because this week I got a phone call from a client who said, Geez, the Canadian dollar has been uh, on a bit of a run right now. I'm thinking we should convert some of our Canadian dollars into U.S. dollars, and in anticipation of the fact that we were hoping to go down south uh, in, in in the late fall or, or certainly over the winter next year, winter 2022. And so, um, you know, they were wondering, is this a good time to do it? And currencies are an interesting one, but and Don sort of hit it on the head. I think in terms of commodities. The, uh, the fact that uh, oil's been strong, resources have been strong, a lot of people have to convert to Canadian dollars to pay us for all the resources we have. So the demand for the Canadian dollar has been up. Bottom line is we decided let's convert 6,000 Canadian to U.S., and we got almost five grand uh us as a result of that so they've tucked that away for their trip for next uh next fall or winter
1: can i ask you this andy is this you know because you guys always talk about this that by the time it's making noise it's probably too late should this have been something that was done six months ago is it too late now to cash in on this i guess assuming it's just going to go higher
2: yeah i think that um you know, p- currencies are probably the most difficult thing to predict, and that's uh, sort of a well-known uh, story around them. But the at the end of the day, with the, in, the, in the discussion with the client, we said, "You know what? Take some now, and if it goes uh, if it goes up some more, uh, maybe convert a little bit more." Uh, so it's sort of like that reverse dollar cost averaging, exactly. that Don was talking about so. Uh no, no harm in, uh, in setting some aside right now, and, uh, and, and maybe it, it, it could go higher, but that's, uh, I think that's, it, it all makes sense to do some now.
3: And it's actually not too late, Scott, because right now at $0.83 cents is, a, is a better value for anybody that wants to cash in and go in some dollars to buy U.S. dollars than it was six months ago. So it's actually the highest point right now than it has been um, since the, even before this pandemic. So it's, a, it's a, good op- a good opportunity for those who are planning that post-pandemic vacation, which I'm sure a lot of us are. But it's interesting, if you look at the history of the Canadian dollar, and you go from 1999 all the way to 2000, I'm going to say, who's going to win this contest of what was the average value of a Canadian dollar versus the U.S. dollar? So if you had $1 U.S., how much would that be equivalent? Sorry, $1 Canadian, how much would that be equivalent in, a $1, in a U.S.? What would you guess, boys? Uh, $0.78. 78
1: I I was going to say 75
3: Oh, both going low. $0.83. Cents. Uh, and the reason okay. I bring this up is it is currently $0.83. Cents. We are exactly at this 21-year average right now, which is shocking. I guessed also that it would have been lower. And I... And I mentioned this to my wife over, the, over this past week, and she guessed lower too. So uh, all of us think it's always a little lower than that. But we did hit some really interesting times. If you go back to 2002, we bottomed out at $0.64. Cents. And by 2007, it was at a box six. So had you bought U.S. currency in 2002, it, it's, it had a 66% difference. Okay, which means our Canadian dollar went up by 66%. So, how does this affect your investment portfolio? Well, a lot because when you buy a US mutual fund or a European mutual fund or emerging market um, mutual fund, you are getting their currency to purchase those. So, if the US market goes up by 10% and our dollar went from 75 cents US to 82.5 cents US, that means, their U, that means their dollar went down by 10%. Okay, so at the net result, even though you're looking at their stock market thinking, hey, the U.S. stock market is doing great, my U.S. portfolio must be also doing well. No, the net return is zero because our the currency would have wiped out the return. So that's where one offsets the other. Now, the opposite can also happen when the market's doing well, but our Canadian dollar also is doing poorly at the same time. So if the U.S. dollar doing strong is getting stronger and the u.s stock market is getting stronger then it's a double whammy you're actually getting higher returns on both ends and so that's also happened so you got to be aware it's it's kind of interesting so it will it, it is actually good to diversify currencies because who's to say our currency is the best one to have that being said living in our country it's the safest to have things in canadian currency because there's less volatility so Yes, and then it's kind of amazing just on the volatility. As I mentioned, it went from two, 64 cents in 2002 to a dollar six in 2007. The the uh, the financial crisis in 0809, the mark, the dollar went down to 79 cents again, but by 2011 it was back up to a buck five, and then by 2020 it dropped to 71 cents a year ago, and now it's back to 83 cents. So absolutely. Currency makes a difference. It's something you should have in your portfolio. And you do, as long as you diversify totally. But understanding it, so just so when you are looking at your returns and you think, wow, I'm, I might have a lot of money in, in, say, Europe, and I hear their stock market's doing well, and you're looking at your own, we have to convert it back to Canadian dollars. And that could improve it, or it actually may make your returns smaller, depending on what the Canadian dollar is or has done in that period of time. But at the end of the day, it's just another form of diversification.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, 905-529-7165. They'll get back to you and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Taking a quick break here. We'll be right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They will get back to you promptly. 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about taxing your online income. A lot of people have been finding other ways to generate revenue during this pandemic.
2: Yeah exactly you know and this was a uh, an article in the um Globe and Mail recently and I uh talking about how CRA is focusing on collecting taxes for our online activities and I guess the one that jumps out at me is the uh is the video gaming uh phenomenon right where you have these video gaming stars not only are people watching them play the game uh but they're also getting making money doing this right and it's uh it's a whole new way of generating an income that, uh, who would have thought of, you know, a decade ago at that point, if you were spending that much time playing video games, you, you were considered another category of person. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a job. (laughs) No. And, um, so Canada revenue agency is sort of caught on to this in the sense that, um, they're looking to get their share of taxes on the income that we're earning through our online activities. And, uh, they talk about four different platform economies that they're focusing on. And what they, what they call a platform economy would include things like um, social activities facilitated by the internet, uh, mobile apps. Um, and basically those platforms, really what they're doing is they're connecting buyers and consumers with sellers and service providers. And so what they're hoping to do is raise or uncover a lot of unreported income and collect some significant tax dollars from this uh, action that they've taken. So, the first one that we, uh, a lot of us, are familiar with is the sharing economy. And uh, in this case, basically, people are using their personal assets, whether it's cars or homes or cottages, to generate revenue by sharing those assets with others in return for a payment. And typically, those assets, so you own the uh, um, you own the asset yourself, but you're registering it with a third-party platform. It could be Airbnb, Canada Stays, or with your vehicle, it's Uber or Lyft. And basically, um, by sharing that, uh, you're developing work, um, income from it. And it could be everything from, you know, bike rentals, boats, food deliveries, and, of course, space, too. Some people are renting gardens, workspace, or laboratories. So that's one one, the sharing economy. The second, um, the second economy is the gig economy, G-I-G, gig economy, and that's where people are providing short-term services or work on a contract or, or freelance basis, as opposed to permanent employment position that we're familiar with. And so these folks are considered by the taxman to be self-employed, and, uh, and, but usually that work is coordinated through some kind of third-party online resource. There's one called ClickWorker, there's crowdsource, uh, a few different ones that allow you to uh, basically set up a contract on a freelance basis. So number two, that's the gig economy. Number three is the peer-to-peer economy. And the peer-to-peer economy is where people are selling goods or services from one person directly to another. So we've seen Kijiji Uh, there's Etsy, which is more about, you know, you're creating a product and selling it, Amazon does it as well. Now listen, here, but Scott, you don't have to worry. If you're, if you're selling your old hockey equipment on Kijiji for, for a fraction of what you paid for it 10 years ago, don't worry. They're, I don't think CRA is going to be coming after you for, for that.
1: You know, yeah, when you were talking about that, this, that's exactly what I was thinking of because uh, with some of the spare time that we've had and since we've been in our place for 20 years, we started selling stuff. And it's amazing how much crap you have that's still a value to someone and someone wants it. It
2: is. And and, and the, typically, if you just think about it in the sense that as long as you're if you're selling it for way less than what you paid for it, it's you know, you, you're losing money in the big scheme of things. So it's not something that CRA is going to be after. But I guess there's marketplace and a few other where depending on the, the what you're selling and the activity that you've got there, uh, you could be generating enough income that uh, the flags might go up for CRA. For me, it's uh, for
1: us, it's less about the money coming in and more about the space it creates once it goes out.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's so true. Uh, I'm dying to have a yard sale, but we can't. <laughs> um, so that the third, uh, as I said, so the third uh, economy there is the peer-to-peer economy. And the fourth and final one is the social media influencers. And this is where, you know, how many uh, followers do people have uh, on their Instagram feed or their YouTube feed or Facebook or Twitter or Twitch? There's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, but basically, there's a growing number of people that are earning an income through those social media platforms. And uh the money they earn typically comes from advertising revenue. Uh, it could be subscriptions. It could be product placements in their, uh, in their, in their programs or, pr- or product promotion. And so basically what's happened is that these people have developed a reputation for their expertise or knowledge on a specific topic or even a video game, and, uh, and they can motivate their followers to buy products or services. And as a result, they get paid for this okay so that's the social media influencers platform so how does this sort of audit well i guess the question is how do they find these economies and if people aren't reporting the income i think the key thing is you need to be aware that the taxman's using they have access to some sophisticated means to identify who you are uh and they even have access if they have any um uh uh, proof they suspect tax evasion cra can gain access to lists of registrants which would be things like um Airbnb lists who uh who is selling stuff on ebay. And so CRA will will go to lengths to check this thing out. And the main thing that they're looking at too is do your do the pictures you have on Instagram with you in a Mercedes Benz (laughs) do they match with your income that you're showing of twenty five thousand dollars a year. So (laughs) There there's a lot of ways that they're keeping track of us, and it's uh, it's not just numbers.
1: We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows. Another award-winning gentleman show. Uh, Thank you so much for the time and such, and have yourself a great
0: weekend. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified,